come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house! Hi everyone, welcome to Ghouls Only Cast. This is Meg. So today I'm going to be delving into something a little bit different from what I've done in previous episodes. So I've done horror movies before, but this is just a little bit different. So I've never really talked about anything that would be considered as very grotesque here, but this is what I'm going to be delving into today. So the story is kind of upsetting to some, but if you're like me, you know, it can be kind of difficult, but overall, it is worth seeing. So today's film is called Shoujo Subaki. It's sometimes spelled like Shuju Subaki. It's also been called Mr. Arashi's Amazing Freak Show, or it's been simply called Midori. When I go through this, I'm going to be going back and forth between calling it Shoujo Subaki and calling it Midori, um, just because Midori is quicker. <laughs> I just want to put out a warning here. This is considered a very disturbing anime and descriptions of the imagery may be upsetting to some people, particularly uh, survivors of abuse. This is one of those no stone unturned films in, you know, regards to upsetting content. So I suggest that you just listen at your own discretion. If you need to stop it, that's okay. Don't feel bad or anything. Uh, I chose this anime rather than what someone might typically choose for a Halloween episode because so many franchises and horror movies are retreaded constantly and it just, it gets a little old. I mean, I get it. Jason doesn't make much sense. The thorn aspect of Michael Myers is somehow convoluted and hardly explained at the same time. I mean, you don't have to tell me. I've lived there for years. I know what's up. And I think that, as a whole, most American horror is simply not that scary anymore. I mean, granted, what may be scary for you may just not be scary for me. I intend to talk about American horror films on this podcast a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong. But honestly, I believe that if you want to be scared this Halloween, you should really consider looking outside of your own culture. I know I have a few listeners outside of the United States, but I'm speaking from my own personal experiences here. It's said that the best thing that you can do to experience a foreign land, other than talking to natives, is eating their cuisine. I think that we should also examine, you know, what scares people in other cultures. Because if you do research, the folklore monsters and spirits of other countries are some of the most fascinating things that you could read about this season. Even though it's almost over. Sorry. <laughs> For example, we have the Indonesian liak, which is a floating head with dangling entrails that haunts the skies looking for pregnant women to eat their unborn babies. Or the kappa, which is a Japanese humanoid turtle creature that will grab children and that venture unattended into water and steal their soul out of their asshole. It is really easy to infer with both of these things that the overarching fear, but shown in vastly different ways, is the fear of losing our children. So we make stories up to guide children away from the water and prevent drowning, or keep pregnant women vigilant in order to protect their unborn babies. Our cultures create monsters in direct accordance to our contemporary existential horrors. Some of those things stick around for centuries, and some fade out. Horror is culture, and culture 
dictates horror. We need horror in order to understand who we are at a given time and what we need as a society. Horror is catharsis, and horror is also a mirror. Halloween is just this unique holiday with paganistic roots that's devoted fully to being frightened and honoring those spirits that terrify us with fun and reverence. It seems to slowly and covertly be suppressed more and more each year for the safety of the children, uh, sadly, which is a serious injustice for more than just candy companies. And a friendly aside here to remind you that the only kid who was ever recorded as being poisoned by Halloween candy was poisoned by his own daddy. But all moral panic aside, being frightened in some ways is it's integral to our growth. And being frightened for fun is about as American as it gets. In Western culture, particularly the United States, we fear the other more than anything else. People who aren't who they say they are, like in Hitchcock's Psycho, Vertigo, Shadow of a Doubt, etc. During the Cold War, we were handed a slew of others in the form of aliens, like invaders from Mars, invasion of the body snatchers, basically those who look like you but want to corrupt your way of life or kill you. We fear the other in the form of viruses. You know, the blank-faced zombies, but more importantly, the infected person who refuses to tell anyone. Americans feared the other in the 70s, when pretty much every serial killer you have ever read about was active, and the first wave of stalker films hit the scene and created a glut later on. We fear the new person in our social circle, who takes over our lives, wears our clothes, assumes our identity. We fear groups of others in the form of unexplained cults. The list goes on and on, but we are growing to fear the other in new ways that we haven't before, thanks to the rising star of artists like Junji Ito. Junji Ito is becoming a relatively well-known name in America because Viz Media is finally releasing his stories overseas at what I think is like a lightning pace at this point, and there's been uh, all these partnerships with fast fashion stores like Hot Topic. I have been a fan of Junji Ito's for about 12 years. I randomly found a scan of Uzumaki when I was in high school, and I stayed up all night reading it. I had never read a Japanese horror story before. I had never seen art like it before. It was just an absolute culture shock to me. It was like a religious experience almost. You know, uh, Uzumaki made me uneasy in ways that I had never experienced before, and I was a proud marathon watcher of horror movies from a very young age. I mean, his stories often have people acting outside of the realm of normalcy due to some kind of unstoppable force or outside influence, which you can probably guess he's always been greatly influenced by, like, H.P. Lovecraft and similar writers, and because that shows very well. Junji Ito is currently in a very unique position, as, you know, Japanese horror is no stranger to America. I mean, think of The Ring and The Grudge, but it's exceedingly rare that a horror manga artist can break through here. I mean, horror is cultural and subjective, as I said before. I mean, we had to remake and tweak the ring and the grudge to make them successful here, but what do you think is creating intrigue within young people to seek out and read Junji Ito, aside from his traditionally beautiful but grotesque art? I genuinely believe that it is the growing interest that we have in body horror. For those who aren't privy, body horror is a subgenre of horror that chiefly pertains to, well, your body. Your body acting on its own, contorting without reason, growing into horrible shapes or being maimed in abnormal ways. It makes your skin crawl because although you can avoid a serial killer, especially now that there isn't lead in literally everything, but that's a whole different fucking story, uh, you are stuck in your body. If you're like me and, and 
unfortunately suffered a lot of trauma in your early life, you may dissociate when triggered and feel like you aren't in your body, which is very frightening, which just creates more anxiety. Being acutely aware of your mortality at any given moment is anxiety-inducing, like staring at yourself in the mirror long enough that you realize that you're just this organic bag of flesh that anything can happen to, and suddenly you don't understand why we're even here and what's the point, and wow, suddenly you don't feel so good anymore. We've been slowly shifting to body horror more and more since films like the Saw series hit the scene. Like, I believe that the reason the movie adaptation of Stephen King's It did so well in the past few years was not necessarily because of the killer clown aspect, but because there was a much bigger emphasis on bodies moving in abnormal ways or having unnatural features. It seems to me like Bill Skarsgård's uh, ability to make his eyes drift scared more people than his actual clown makeup did. I mean, add the elongated woman that looks like a direct ripoff of Junji Ito's supermodel, and there you have it. It feels like Japan has had a grip on body horror for quite some time, in part what I can only assume is due to the devastating aftermath of having two nuclear bombs dropped on them and their ever-growing culture of isolation. America has been moving towards those ladder feelings too, feeling alienated from each other and putting the corporate ladder directly in front of those we love, because many of us don't have a choice in that matter. We work ourselves ragged for little compensation, and though we recognize the serious imbalance in our lives, we feel absolutely powerless to change it. So in turn, we devour the weirdo stories of people behaving strangely and bodies being violated in absurd and creepy ways. But you know, you have to wonder, is it because we're actually afraid of new illnesses plaguing us? Afraid because of the psychological needs of others go vastly unchecked and we see the product of that negligence and we feel helpless to change it? Are we afraid of our bodies because we're afraid of growing old and not having as much control over all of our faculties? I mean, personally, I certainly fucking think so. I believe, without any wavering whatsoever, that the horror-based content that people consume in a given time period will tell you just as much, if not more, about their current culture than any history textbook can. Horror is not this depressing thing that I've laid out, though. It takes these jarring realities and it makes spectacles of them. It makes them digestible. It makes them fucking fun. You know, we cringe, but we adore the gore and the degradation of it all. We see the hidden meaning and we finally can nod inwardly and laugh at our existential dread right in its stupid fucking face. We can relax or we can get scared. We can name our fear and then we can tame our fear. And if you're just getting into Japanese horror manga or Guro art, Junji Ito is often who you will first find. Guro, by the way, is is a Japanese word that basically is just their version of grotesque. Eroguro is another example, grotesque erotica. Junji Ito may inspire you to look for more artists, as it did me, and you'll come across names like Kazuo Omezu, Shintaro Keigo, Toshio Seki, and Suhiro Mauro, who I will be discussing today. Suhiro Mauro is an artist that some would recognize right away if they were on the horror tag of Photo Bucket in the early 2000s or trolling the darker corners of image boards. Just imagine this. A painting of a beautiful dark background with fireworks bursting and multiple brilliant swipes of color. In the foreground, you have a boy and a girl in traditional Japanese high school uniforms and they're locked in a loving embrace. The boy holds the girl close, with one hand peeling down the flesh of her face and he's passionately making out with her eye. When I first saw this picture, I was about 15, and I was absolutely dumbfounded by it. 
what on the good green fucking earth was I looking at? I saved this picture to my computer immediately with, you know, the other edgelord pictures that I had in my collection, and I just kind of forgot about it. I met a boy on an image board who told me that he loved gross Japanese art, and he sent me a gory photo in a style that looked really familiar to me. I sent the fireworks photo to him and said that it reminded me of it. He promptly put a stamp on my you're not like other girls card that us women folk are issued when we listen to Neutral Milk Hotel for the first time. And I asked him, who was it that made it? And he told me, Suhiro Mauro. I tucked that name away and continued my forays into Japanese horror, but I didn't think about him again for years. So, Suhiro Maro is a middle school dropout who was born in 1956, who spent his time binding books as a little kid until he created his first manga at only the age of 17. But Shonen Jump didn't want it because it was too graphic and disturbing for them. He got his first break at 24 and has been creating stuff ever since, either making comics, album art for bands, creating standalone paintings, or helping to design advertisements. His art is immediately recognizable for being really graphic in some cases, or the use of painting multiples of a single character's body part to denote movement. His painting of Nosferatu is my favorite use of that technique, where he has several heads gliding down on a black background to bite a woman who is laying prone on the foreground. A lot of his pieces involve eyeball licking for one reason or another, like a whole lot of eyeball licking. This is apparently a real kink that's called oculolinctus, also known as worming. Some people really get off on it, I guess, but apparently it can really, really give you serious infections. Like, the mouth is a filthy, filthy place. You can straight up get herpes or the clap in your eyeball if you do this shit. I mean, obviously you can get a gnarly case of pink eye. Like, you know, I don't like to kink shame anyone, but maybe you should use a dental dam or something. I mean, I don't know. His... Work has become something of a cult classic over the years. Like, if you know him, you gain some street cred and obviously must know your shit. I can't find a lot about Maro's personal life or what he's doing right now, because in Japan, it seems like unless you're doing weekly work for a publication, you aren't really in the public eye. And even if you are, the paparazzi culture is just thankfully not the same over there. Many of his works have never been translated to English or adapted, so finding his books is a feat. I found two books in their original text at a store in Oregon, but I still consider that to be a fluke and pure luck. In Japan, you know, it's also considered to be essentially acknowledging the death of your career if you sell your sketches and original artwork for manga, so his work is hard to find in general. He's not the biggest name in manga, and his art mostly goes under the radar here in the States, so I tended to forget about him as I just grew to obsess over Junji Ito in my teens. I'm gonna cut here to me in my mid-twenties talking to my friend Anthony at a convention that he was vending for with his equally lovely wife. He handed me a bootleg copy of something called Mr. Arashi's Amazing Freak Show after I decided to buy some original Shintaro Keigo sketches that he was selling. I know I said before that artists don't sell their art, but he actually knows Shintaro Keigo, so it's different. I recognized the cover of Mr. Arashi's Amazing Freak Show and just kind of zoned out staring at it, and after a moment or two his voice came into focus again, telling me that this anime is based off of a story by Suhiro Maro. Uh, one man made this anime and it was banned for its content. I bought it, you know, immediately and watched it the next day. It is, admittedly, 
a gross movie and there's no happy ending to it, but it struck a nerve in me. I had never seen anything like it and I was enchanted by the ingenuity of one guy to translate this manga of mostly single page drawings into a film. It is pure unadulterated horror in a way that diverts from what you would generally consider as capital H horror. It deals with the cruelty of others, the fear of the loss of control, the horror of being stuck in a helpless situation, and the terror of having your body completely transform without your consent. The manga is an exceedingly fast read and is, oddly enough, not nearly as difficult to consume as the anime. There's also a live-action adaptation of Shouju Tsubaki that came out just a few years ago and it really isn't half bad. I enjoyed it and found it much more palatable than both the manga and the anime due to some of the worst aspects not really being allowed to be shown in movies these days. If you can find it, I say go for it. But let's delve into the anime now. I'm mostly going to refer to it as Midori from this point on, just to save some time. The only way to describe the making of this anime is as an extreme labor of love. Hiroshi Harada had nearly no film credits to his name when he floated the idea of trying to create an animated adaptation of Shoujo Tsubaki, the subject of which is a grotesque love letter to the Showa-era carnival-style freak shows, fortune tellers, and small-time performances that were popular in Japan in the difficult years that were sandwiched between the Great Depression and the advent of home television. I'm probably butchering this, but they were called kamishibai. The story of Midori is pretty simple and straightforward. It's about an innocent orphan girl who sells flowers on the street being sold to the circus. It is so simple that the concept of Midori has actually been an existing story for years and years in Japan, being reiterated over and over with no clear source material to point to. It has been done over to the point where the character of Midori gets referred to as a stock protagonist. For example, Harry Potter is a stock protagonist, because when you boil him down, he's ultimately just a chosen one. So many stories have the chosen one as their protagonist, and Mary Sue is also a stock protagonist. That gives you some sort of idea of how generic the idea of Midori has become over the years. However, somehow, Suhiro Maro's version of Midori is the one that really stuck. It is the version that has become synonymous with Midori. Kind of like how Snow White and The Little Mermaid are actually very old fairy tales, but people automatically associate them with their Disney adaptation before anything else. Two major television and film studios had already tried to adapt Mauro's version of Midori before Harada, but both projects failed in pre-production. This led Mauro to be skeptical of Harada's capabilities, but he gave him his blessing regardless, and the pre-production for Midori began. So Hiroshi Harada went around to several studios and investors trying to get his, this anime funded, and no one would touch it. It was too graphic, too grotesque, no one will accept such violence against a child, etc, etc, etc. All the reasons were there, and were perfectly valid. Artists like Suhiro Maru were certainly the outlier, not mainstream and certainly not family-friendly. At the time, Harada had only had one known credit to his film career as a director for the short film called The Death Lullaby in 1985. You can watch it in full on YouTube. I scrubbed through it a bit myself. It's pretty bleak and experimental, but my favorite parts were definitely the subtitles. Here's a little example for you. You stepped into my house. I torment you thoroughly today. My power is strong. Did you understand it? 
<laughs> it has the same homemade quality as Midori because it was just a little independent project that was chiefly made for the film festival circuit. It gave Harada the public attention and more importantly the courage to try to get Midori made, but no one wanted their name on it. The majority of the budget for an anime at that time went towards salaries, so with no funding, Harada couldn't hire anyone. So Harada essentially said, well, screw you guys, I'll make it myself. So for five long years, he absolutely toiled with Midori, directing it, writing the screenplay, using his whole life savings as executive producer to make it because he could find no investors, and he animated it himself. He seriously painted all of the cells by hand, over 5,000 of them, one by one, which is why a lot of the film is a static painting with a voiceover or music or something like that. This is a feat that I think is just absolutely remarkable. I watched footage of him working and he literally was painting a background with his left hand while doing smaller details with his right hand. Just unbelievable. Harada used the pseudonym Etsu Hisakai for the directing credit, just so that he wouldn't look like he did it all alone. This devotion and steadfast determination to create something is what some artists only dream of. This is the kind of discipline that many of us lack, myself included, and if you don't enjoy Midori for its content, you have to at least admire Harada for sticking with it until the very end. I mean, he was able to bring on a small team for animation and voice acting at the end, and that was it. He did it. It took half a decade, but he did it. He promoted the film when it was finally completed in 1992, and he wanted to maintain control over the showings in case of trouble, as well as deciding that it would only be shown in venues that were decorated to look like a carnival freak show, creating an immersive film experience for the viewers. He was partly inspired to do this by Shuji Teriyama, who would do stuff like that for the screenings of his films. I haven't seen any of his films, but I've heard of him being referred to as kind of like a Japanese Hodorowsky, which sounds pretty damn cool to me. The film opened to little fanfare, but the audiences in Japan that did see it absolutely hated the film, and a campaign was informally launched, so to speak, to have the film destroyed. Needless to say, it was banned very shortly after being intercepted by the Film Censor Board of Japan. A new version of the film was released in 1994, where it was edited for viewership, which meant cutting out 26 scenes and blurring all of the other controversial elements that essentially made up the entirety of the movie. And even when heavily censored, screening the film was not a success. Both versions of the films were essentially put away in the proverbial attic, and Midori likely became something of legend, a supposedly deranged film that no one saw and never wanted to see again. Just as well, the film was outright banned from ever leaving the shores of Japan due to custom seizures for illegal content. There were supposedly a few videotapes floating around of the uncensored version, which were copied several times over and distributed illegally by collectors to each other using, you know, underground means of correspondence, which probably sounds way cooler than it actually is. In 2013, the original 16mm transfers of the film were found stowed away at a warehouse for a production company called a Magica Group. A new digital print was made from those transfers and has since been screened in Japan to much better reception, in part for it being a little piece of history and, I'm guessing, the fact that way worse stuff has been made at this point in time. 
Like, let me get on my soapbox for a second and demand that Warner Brothers stop being such insufferable wieners and re-release Ken Russell's The Devil's Uncut and Uncensored. Quit trying to erase history to appease the religion that perpetrated the real-life crimes that were dramatized for the movie. Way worse content has been made since then. It really isn't a big deal. Criterion, please, do the thing. Oh my god. Back to Midori. <laughs> Harada's production company apparently has had plans to re-release the film on Blu-ray this year, but that's not likely to happen because of COVID. But I don't... Maybe it's already come out? I don't know. I certainly can't find it anywhere. Digital transfer be damned, it still just isn't the easiest film to find in the world. Though you have to really look for it now, we are likely to see Midori and other Japanese Eroguro stories popping up in America in the near future, just because our collective tastes in horror are evolving. The copy that I own is a bootleg, and the majority of copies that you might find on eBay and such are also probably going to be bootlegs. That's you know, just the way it is right now. Its scarcity demands that you work to find it, but you're going to be rewarded with one of the most perplexing and deranged viewing experiences of your life. The movie clocks in at just under an hour, and it wastes no time in twisting your perceptions and exposing you to the degradation that you have never seen before in an animated film. So, reject your humanity, Jojo. Let's talk about Midori. I am not going to hold your hand through this summary, but I will be sure to point out right before something that is potentially upsetting is going to happen. Not all the incidents are created equal, but I'll try to use my best judgment in them. The film opens on scans of drawings of various yokai, with feverish drumming in the background along with crashes of thunder. We're then treated to the ramshackle exterior of a squalid living quarters, and within is a montage of various carnival performers and... I'm sorry, there's no other way to describe them for this, freak show attractions. In the manga, there are simply several pages devoted to one detailed piece of art per page that seem to have nothing to do with each other, but Harada was able to translate it into a proper introduction of all of our characters. A carnival barker spews forth random atrocities as if they are part of a must-see exhibit, and within the first minute, we have our first cycle of animation that turns some people off of the film altogether. A la Anxian Andalou, a girl bites the eye of a rooster, and the image freezes on the aftermath of that, which happens to be one of Mauro's better-known illustrations. If you look at them side-by-side, side, the film and the manga, they look almost identical. It's really, really amazing to see. We see our characters here doing their respective acts, which is another interesting point. They absolutely do not try to clean up these acts or make the performers look glamorous. Their stage is haphazardly put together, and their curtains are almost made entirely out of patches. They look very, very poor, and they have various disabilities, and they torture each other on stage. Harada said that he personally identified with those who were disabled because he himself was partially disabled due to intestinal ulcers that kept him from living a normal life. He said that he never wanted to show this as an exploitation or anything like that, but a profound appreciation for the difference of others, as well as an appreciation for Mauro's vision. Here we have a title card, which appears periodically to denote chapters, like a manga. I won't mention them anymore, but it's an important transition here. First we have Prologue, The Hell of Others. Sounds of traffic, music, and low levels of conversation play over static paintings of streets, storefronts, and bridges. A tween girl with short hair recites a poem as she leans against a dirty wall, a basket of camellia flowers in her hand. This is Midori. 
Although it's the early hours of the morning, she stops a passing man and tries to sell him a flower. He encourages her to go somewhere happier and more lively because she's in a sketchy part of town where men may take advantage of her. He asks her about her parents, to which she responds that her father ran out on them and her mother is very sick. He offers to buy all of her flowers and insists that if she is ever in any trouble, to come and find him, wherever that may be. Midori returns home, which appears to be a studio apartment, ecstatic to announce that she has enough money to go on her school trip. Her mother is laying in her futon and, unfortunately, long dead at this point. I'm going to give you a little warning here. Midori peels back the blankets to see that rats have already made their way into the bed and have begun biting and eating her mother's lower region. Midori is now penniless and orphaned, with the townsfolk all gossiping about her mother. She goes out to find the man who had bought all of her flowers that night and is shocked to find a squalid living quarters that is full of sideshow people. The man who bought her flowers is their boss, Mr. Arashi. Of the performers, we have a topless woman who does various tricks with snakes, a kid around Midori's age named Kanaban who breathes fire, the mummy man who is a multi-amputee and burn victim who does tricks with his feet, a strong man who is also a sword swallower, a man who has no arms or legs, and a man who appears to have a severe deformity of the spine that leaves him looking permanently twisted, and his neck looks like a candy cane. Midori comes to live with the performers, stating plainly that the man had tricked her. There is a montage of images of Midori being degraded, beaten, molested, including more fucking eyeball licking, and she tells us that she is essentially their slave and is barred from the outside world. She dreams of killing herself to escape them. Harada was kind enough, though, to add some crude paintings of kids having a good time interspersed with all of that horridness to balance all this out, so I guess, thanks. <laughs> Midori is actually the girl we saw earlier who hurt the rooster, and now we see her after the performance, vomiting and crying while the others degrade her for being squeamish. We then see that this freak show that Midori has been unwittingly forced into is not even remotely successful. Mr. Arashi barks to a crowd of three boys who look extremely bored and heckle him. The thing that Arashi is trying to entertain the boys with makes absolutely no sense if you haven't read the manga. If I have learned one thing in all of my confused hours of watching subtitled anime and not understanding the humor one damn bit, it's that Japanese people love wordplay. Wordplay, though, does not fucking translate very well. So the subs did their absolute best. He's telling the boys to beware the horrifying Nordlack, which is an upside-down cauldron. Nilbog is goblin spelled backwards. You get it. You see. Ha ha ha. Uh, <laughs> the other horror he is playing up is a bloodstain, a dark red mark on a piece of wood. Like, staining wood. Hardy fucking horror. The kids hate it, and so do I. But it turns out that the kids didn't even pay, so the sideshow suffers even more. Even so, that doesn't stop them all from having freaking orgies every night in front of Midori, who refuses to join in because she's not disgusting. Even old Mr. Arashi is getting it on with the obviously underage kid named Kanaban, and guess what he's doing? He's licking the fucking eyeball. Why? Someone who's into that stuff, please write to me and explain yourself. I don't understand. So the next day, we see that Midori has been secreting away a litter of puppies underneath the porch and is taking care of them. They seem to be the only real joy in her life, and she loves them dearly. It's not clear where they came from, but Midori knows that they have to stay a secret or the others will eat them. Kanaban discovers the puppies and, like the others, absolutely despises Midori and lives to terrorize her. 
Due to the sideshow failing so miserably, the troupe is also starving to a degree, and they believe that Midori has somehow jinxed them into this situation. Uh, big warning at this point for you, I'm really sorry. Kanaban then takes the dogs and dashes their heads and stomps them, and that night the troop is eating a full meal of meat stew for the first time in ages. The troop asked how much the meat had cost, and Kanaban just says, Oh nothing, you can't buy dog meat. The troop seems shocked but ultimately unfazed, while Midori is positively beside herself with grief. It's really difficult to watch. Uh, of all the things that happen, I just really don't like that scene at all. It's very upsetting. Next, we see that winter has rolled around and Midori's only joy in life now is to stand and wave at trains as they roll by, daydreaming that one day they will take her away from these fucking awful people. At night, Midori fights off the sexual advances of the mummy man, who loves her, but she is a fucking kid and certainly doesn't love him back. In the morning, Midori works on mending clothes as she uncomfortably watches Kanaban practicing fire breathing. Kanaban is drawn with long hair and bangs tied back into a ribbon, and either a kimono or a tank top and panties with tights underneath. Midori is shocked and horrified at this point to see Kanaban stepping off the porch and taking a piss standing up. Laughing, they turn around and, sh and wave their penis around while mocking Midori. And that's where Kanaban's full sideshow title comes from. Kanaban the boy girl. The following night, Midori dreams of looking for her father in a long corridor and finds him crouched in the shadows eating a pickle. It looks like a pickle. When she sees him, she falls to the floor and her body starts contorting painfully in different directions while a caterpillar starts crawling into her ear. She screams helplessly for her father while the troop laughs at her. It is just the ultimate unexplainable traumatic stress dream. I honestly wonder if Maro had actually had a dream like this and decided to put it into a manga because it seems like one of those incredibly fucked up dreams that you might have if you're under a lot of stress. Midori wakes up with a high fever and Mr. Arashi continues to fret about the failing show. The snake woman reminds him that they haven't even been paid in three months. The strong man and the mummy man later confide in each other that they don't even have enough money to leave the freak show and essentially are only doing it so that they have a place to live. They consider seeking out construction work, but aha! Mr. Rashi has secured a new attraction for the show, a western-style magician from Tokyo. He is a dwarven man named Masamitsu, with hair like devil horns and a pointy goatee and pencil mustache to match. And we first see him comfortably nestled in a bottle like a chunky little flesh sailboat. His main trick that he does is that he can twist and contort his body in order to go in and out of a large bottle. Midori falls in love with him, which is possibly grosser to see than a lot of the other shit we've seen in this movie so far. The guy looks to be about 45, while Midori is somewhere between 11 and 13. Ickiness aside, Midori starts to feel more liberated, secure, and confident in herself, much to the chagrin of the other performers. Masamitsu has brought exponential growth in audiences to see his bottle trick, and it seems that his real ability, as far as magic goes, is to create hallucinations in others. Because when the strong man and the others abuse Midori, she suddenly grows 20 times her original size and crushes them, only for everything to go back to normal seconds later. Then, while the mummy man is confessing his love to Midori, Masamitsu deludes him into believing that he's being buried alive, when in reality the magician is shoving dirt down his gullet until he chokes to death. Midori is now frightened by Masamitsu, as this marks their relationship taking a much more possessive and malvolent turn. 
When a man from a production studio comes by on the pretense of casting her in a film, he gives Midori his business card, but Masamitsu rips it to pieces and beats her. He imprisons her in a bottle and takes to the stage. The crowd has already begun to heckle him, and because he's also been an abusive psycho all day, he finds that he's having trouble doing the trick. The audience starts chastising him even more, he lambasts the audience right back, and finally, someone calls him short ass, which is apparently his trigger word. The next part is possibly the grossest and most iconic part of the whole anime. Masamitsu goes absolutely berserk, and the audience's bodies start morphing, swelling, and exploding in positively horrendous ways. Faces morph in half, melt, twist, dissolve, bodies mutate, explode into bits with organs flying everywhere, anything that you can think of. The sounds are organic and otherworldly, like an mp3 recording straight from the torture pits of hell itself. It is an absolutely fantastic sequence, and Harada did an excellent job animating such a horrendous thing. Collaged here and there behind Masamitsu are actual photographs of deformed fetuses and babies to really add another layer to how messed up this is. When the sideshow tent appears to be on fire, the police show up, and of course, it appears as if nothing even happened. But Mr. Arashi is terrified that the customers will sue him. Masamitsu declares his resignation and tells Midori that he wants her to leave with him. Of course, Midori simply wishes with all of her heart to go back home to Tokyo. The magician then conjures up a detailed dream or hallucination that Midori is back home with her mother and father. I'm assuming just so that she can feel that sense of normalcy one more time, and it offers the tantalizing idea that he can create this illusion for her anytime she pleases. While Midori and the magician leave, it is made known that the troupe is dissolving now, because Mr. Arashi ran away with all the money, abandoning everyone and leaving them to fend for themselves. The snake woman intends to seek out and marry a rich old man, whereas the rest of them will likely follow the strong man to the next fairground. Midori leaves, but seems oddly wistful about it. She thanks them all, and says that she hopes to see them again, but like, why? Why the fuck would you want to see these horrible people again? But then again, she's leaving with a pedophilic middle-aged man who can create mass solutions of fates worse than death. Oh, and he did fucking kill someone. Uh, Midori is not a very sound mind. I think she just latches on to whomever is closest, no matter how awful they are or how much she repeats that she hates them. But, you know, you have to keep remembering that she is just a little girl. But they leave, and as Midori waits for the bus, Masamitsu wanders off to buy them some lunch. She seems completely spellbound by her sudden turn of luck, and meanwhile, Masamitsu just witnessed a fucking murder. Before he can tell the guy, listen here, friend, if anyone's gonna be doing any murdering around here, it's gonna be me, the man stabs him and runs off. The bus comes and goes. Midori sets off to try to find her literal old man. She runs all over the area looking for him, but keeps coming back to these church ruins, and there's always the same guy walking by and sneezing, like she's caught in a time loop or something. Midori begins to panic until she suddenly hears laughter. She isn't in the church ruins anymore. She's by the stairs leading to the freak show's living quarters. The whole troop is there, laughing their asses off while Masamitsu stands in the middle and stares daggers at her. 
Midori screams bloody murder and starts trying to beat them all with a piece of wood. She cries and continues having a total breakdown, but the troop just seem to float away every time she swings at them. All the world's color leaves, aside from bloody red cherry blossom petals. They all morph and fly around her like a tornado until finally disappearing with Midori standing utterly alone in blank whiteness. She lets out a heartbreaking wail of sadness, and the screen fades to the kanji for illusion. I think it's the kanji for it, please don't kill me if I'm wrong. We then get a collage of yokai again, with the recitation of a poem about the camellia girl, Midori. And that's the ending of the film. A lot of questions are left open by the ending. Did Masamitsu create this illusion to further tighten his grip on Midori and let her know that he can make her life wonderful, but if she crosses him, like when she wanted to become an actress, that he can make her life hell? Did Midori have an all-encompassing mental breakdown brought on by not being able to find Masamitsu? It's really hard to tell, and I suppose it's ultimately up to the viewer to decide what becomes of Midori. No matter how you slice it, though, she doesn't get the best ending. Harada said that he ultimately wanted, like he did with the death lullaby, was to bring attention to the mistreatment of children. Suhiro Maro contends that Midori is based in part on true stories, and wanted to shine a light on that horror as well. It is easy to look at a banned film and say that it is absolutely disgusting, irredeemable, and perfect for those top 10 craziest anime lists that clog up YouTube, you know, all that kind of stuff. I would really debate that, though, to be honest. Sure, there's gore, animal cruelty, and sexual atrocities, but the thing that makes Midori such an uncomfortable experience is the sheer bleakness of the story that is unwittingly juxtaposed against beautiful, bright colors wrapped together in an atmosphere of hopelessness. Midori and children like Midori never even have a fighting chance, so they are subject to abuse and exploitation. Even if Midori's mother had never passed, she would still be struggling. Even if she left with Matsumitsu, she would still be struggling. And even if Midori had chosen to go see the filmmaker, who's to say that he really was going to make her famous? I believe that it is these facts that make Midori a horror story, not the gore itself. That the biggest horror of all, I think, never being able to escape a bad situation. I think that we all collectively fear that more than anything else in the world, not having any control whatsoever, whether it's your body, your mind, or your situation. Harada's film was so heavily censored that it didn't have a fighting chance either, but with some looking, you can absolutely watch it today. I think that his film isn't actually an example of how sick an anime can be. I think it's more so an example of how much of a tightened grip there's been in Japan in regards to censorship. When you think about it from that angle, it becomes much clearer as to why Harada was so particular about where and how his movie was shown, and why he never even elected to have it released on home video. He wanted to have full control over Midori, because he knew that once another company got their fingers in it, the censors would have a field day. Midori is a fascinating little movie that, you know, in my opinion, it should be watched, and to at least show Harada some appreciation for his unflinching devotion to the project. He is an inspiration to everyone who doesn't even try to make something because they're worried that they won't make any money or that no one will like it. He injected his whole life savings, five years of his life, and so much more into this film only to have it shut down and hacked to pieces. Which sounds bad. Really, really bad. But by doing so, he created a legend. 
a movie that only those who are really in the know have seen, that to see it in many cases, you have to be willing to seek it out. It's a slimy treasure that hurts to watch in some parts, but it's simultaneously completely captivating and engaging. I absolutely love the look of the art, since it's all just a bunch of hand-painted cells. I just adore that aesthetic and animation so much. It has this soft quality that I can only really describe personally as cold winter cartoons. Let me explain. When you watch something like Dragon Ball, especially on VHS or something, you can obviously see that the colors are bright and almost fuzzy looking, which makes the black outlines a little desaturated and imperfect, creating an overall very warm picture that is comforting and pleasing to look at when you're bundled up at home in the winter. Does that make any sense whatsoever? I mean, I feel the same way about old Charlie Brown cartoons. You know, I think they, they fall into the cold winter category. So do earlier Simpsons, early King of the Hill, Rama one half. I mean, I guess it's just a really specific feeling that I have. I don't know. It probably doesn't make sense to anyone but me. I really don't think that Midori should be written off as not safe for life or just meaningless gore because like I said earlier, way grosser things have been made since then. That does not mean that you should write it off or watch it if you're very squeamish, but I do think that it gets a bad rap. It's a frightening story about abuse and helplessness and exploitation, not just about the horrendous imagery. To think that way is to think in the mindset of the Japanese censors. And the only thing that has really come from extreme censorship on their part is the advent of icky loopholes like tentacle porn and shit like that. It's not helpful and it's disrespectful to Harada and Mauro. If you can find it and you think you can handle what I've told you, you should absolutely watch it. If you speak Spanish, it's on YouTube with Spanish subtitles. Otherwise, you'll have to consult eBay or another e-commerce site. Scans of the manga are online, of course, perfectly free, and plenty of clips of the movie are online as well. For all the negative adjectives that I've used during this, I really do like Midori. I just have to be in a certain mood to watch it. If my anxiety level is high, it's an absolute no-go. I won't watch it. Otherwise, I watch it at least once a year. It's not even an hour long. It's a fascinating story. It has this experimental animation technique that I think is very interesting to see. I recommend it if you like things like Perfect Blue or Urotsuki Doji, or one of Takashi Miike's movies like Ichi the Killer or maybe Visitor Q. Thanks for joining me for a different kind of Halloween episode, and I ain't done yet either. I went to the store the other day and they already have all of the Christmas decorations out. I intend on rebelling against that with the next episode. I say let's extend Halloween just a little bit longer, and if I haven't scared you off yet, I'll be taking a serious turn for the ridiculous with the TV movie adaptation of The Worst Witch, starring a teeny tiny Feruza Balk, a Miss Diana Rigg, rest in peace, and the wonderful Tim Curry. See you then. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul. Cool.